Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Alexis Madrigal. As a queer young poet in San Francisco's underground literary scene, Michelle T. writes that she thought of pregnancy the same way she thought of any STD, but with a dose of the movie Alien. But soon after turning 40, she decided to give it a go, seeking a less traditional, queer, and community-centric mode of making a family. In her new memoir, Knocking Myself Up, the acclaimed author writes about the ups and downs of that journey. T joins us to talk about the book and the world of LGBTQ pregnancy and parenting. That's all coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClure again today for Alexis Madrigal. Michelle T. joins us for this hour of Forum, an acclaimed essayist, author, and poet. T. was a key figure in San Francisco's literary and spoken word scene during the 1990s and beyond, founding the local queer performance art collective Sister Spit and arts nonprofit Radar Productions. Now based in L.A., she's best known for novels like Valencia, Set in the Mission District, a book on tarot, and a series of memoirs, including How to Grow Up. Her latest memoir, Knocking Myself Up, It's all about her struggle to conceive and the joys and unique challenges of queer pregnancy. Welcome, Michelle T. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I have to say I can totally relate, at least to the beginning of your book, in the sense that I was completely oblivious until I was about 39 and a half that I wanted to have a kid. And very fortunately, the stars aligned and my my baby daddy showed up right as my sort of ambivalence turned into I'd say some, somewhat of some clarity, and we have a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old little girl. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I'm curious, what tipped for you? You know, you're sailing along at nearly 40, and then what happened? It was a lot of things, I think, at once. You know, um, I'm really close to my sister, and she had a child, and I was really bonding with her and just watching my sister parent. Um, and then this really weird thing happened. I was dating somebody very casually, not, you know, destined for anything serious, um, and they were really funny and they kept saying to me Michelle you should just have a baby go have a baby Michelle and it was like this really funny it was almost like a joke but then I just started thinking 
gosh, it's so funny that she sees me like that, like that she thinks that it would be so cute if I had a baby, because as somebody who spent a lot of my adulthood broke or, you know, as an alcoholic before I got sober, I always felt I was not parent material. And then I suddenly started wondering if I was parent material, just from this little suggestion from, I felt like that part of me was being seen in this funny way, and it helped me see it a little bit more clearly, because I'd always been very ambivalent. Um, I was in long relationships with people who adamantly did not want children. And so that sort of helped, you know, that made up my mind for me in this way, but it wasn't authentically coming from me. So then suddenly being, you know, more single, you know, kind of more independent, I was like, maybe I want to do this. Did you feel some of your biological clock coming online? Well, when I Googled, you know, women's fertility at 40 and read the read the harsh uh, review, I definitely felt the alarm go off on my biological clock. I was really shocked at everything I was reading. Um, and I had such a, a really strong reaction. I mean, I burst into tears and I was like, well, I guess I do have a feeling about this. I guess I'm not as ambivalent as I thought that I was. Were you drawn by the idea, because I know the thing that tipped me was the love that people talk about between a child and a mother, and I thought, I don't think I can be on this planet and not experience what they say is the most unconditional level of love. And I think you talked about that in your book. Absolutely. Like, I've always been somebody who's very interested in love, and I've written about, you know, romantic love a lot, and even, you know, the bonds of family. And it did feel like this was a major human experience of love that I wasn't going to be plugged into. And I just, you know, was feeling this is my one human life. I sort of want to wring every experience out of it that I can. Um, I was really interested in the physical experience of being pregnant also, I really wanted that. Um, I wanted to just understand what that is like. Um, so it was it was all of it, you know, and then to watch somebody grow and to have that type of bond with someone just was really, really appealing to me the more that, you know, the more that I sort of committed to the process. But even as you were committing, you sort of had this card in your back pocket of like, and if it doesn't work out, I'm going to Paris. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I started with that card in my back pocket, and it was a great card because, you know, no kids go to Paris instead is an amazing, great, you know, alternative to, you know. And, and I have so many friends who are, like, deliberately child-free, and I respect that. And, you know, in no way did I ever think, like, oh, my life, you know, you need a child for your life to be full. Like, I never, ever felt like that. Um, and I did feel like I'll just take on some other kind of amazing project, like being an expat for a season or something, if this doesn't work. But the thing is, the more you invest in this path, you're investing your psyche, your emotions, your body, your money. It's really hard not to get um, attached to that outcome. And I found that that really happened for me. It's pretty bold to want to do this alone. And I, I love the quote. It seems like it was it was partly motivated to do it alone because at the time, maybe you weren't so trusting of, of love. You write, romantic love didn't actually exist. That is that it, that it was, but an amalgamation of codependence and sexual urge festooned with delusions fostered by a culture hell-bent on shoving idealized notions of couplehood down our throats. I mean, forgive me, but that sounds maybe slightly jaded, maybe oh slightly God. influenced by heartbreak. <laughs> So influenced by heartbreak. Oh, my God. I always land in that place after, you know, a relationship kind of goes south. It's really hard for me um, to see to, that love is a true force, 
you know, in our world. Um, I always kind of go through a moment where it just feels really delusional. And I'm an Aquarius. I'm really mental. I can be very detached. And I think that's um, part of what that is. But yeah, I, I did feel like that. And I thought, well, um, you know, in this sort of vacuum, love vacuum, when I am a person that has spent a lot of my time sort of chasing romance and chasing relationships, I think I'm going to look towards this other form of love and kinship, you know, and see what what comes of that. Were you scared? I mean, given, given that it, it seems to me that you put a lot into your career and a lot into your creativity, and to do it as a single parent meant you were going to take a lot of time away from that. So how did you internalize focusing and doing this alone initially as you envisioned it? Um, I definitely was worried about it. I've always sort of uh, existed without any kind of safety net and that I've been able to scrape together any sort of like living in life has often felt miraculous to me. So I did feel like I was tempting fate by bringing in this whole other being that I would need to support. But, um, you know, I just feel like I am scrappy and I am resourceful and I do have sort of punk resources. And I just trusted that, you know, much the way that I've, I'd built my life up to that point that I would figure it out. And I hated the thought that, you know, that this beautiful experience um, was only could only be available to people who had money or were partnered. Like it felt like a real injustice to me. And I also took a lot of um, strength and encouragement from single parents. Right. Like I. Um, I love Ariel Gore, who's another Bay Area writer. Um, she created the zine, which then became a magazine called Hip Mama, after she became pregnant as a teenager and decided to, you know, keep her baby and ended up like in the 90s. She was really influential to me. She was like going on and like MTV, I think, and fighting with Newt Gingrich about like, you know, women on welfare supporting their babies. I mean, she's just super punk and super political and queer. And I actually read her in the 90s. And it did, I feel like it started my biological clock. Because, you know, even though it would still be, you know, decades till I came around, reading um, Hip Mama, she did this book called The Hip Mama Survival Guide. It really made me see motherhood in this different way. You know, to see someone that I related to so deeply um, forging forward and saying, this path is actually political, it's punk, it's queer. I was like, wow. All right. I didn't know that. We're talking about queer pregnancy and parenting with Michelle T. She's the author of the new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. And she appears at Green Apple Books tonight at 7 p.m. at the Ninth Avenue location in conversation with Lisa Brown. So speaking of sort of punk ways of doing this, I love how you found your sperm. Um, sounds like you were even thought about maybe putting an ad on Craigslist, but then eventually found your way to another creative avenue. I'm really glad that it didn't come to me putting an ad on Craigslist. Um, but I was also very happy that that was a, a possibility. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been part of a really incredible, beautiful queer community in San Francisco for decades. I knew a lot of amazing gay boys that seemed to have a lot of sperm and weren't really doing anything with it. So I started kind of just trying to like bum sperm off people. And, you know, there's that Buddhist saying, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And I, you know, while absolutely being in touch with the the depth in the in the seriousness of what I was asking, I'm also just sort of like a whimsical person. So I was just going up to people like at bars and whatnot and people that I, you know, knew and had known for a while, but maybe only in an acquaintance level or we'd see each other at performances. And I would be like, hey, could I have some of your sperm to have a baby? <laughs> and 
and you know they would mostly be like oh my god like you know what what an intense question that i wasn't expecting and people were flooded with feelings or with fears of you know potential feelings and you know i got i got a lot of like no no thanks for askings you know um and then i got word that this incredible like young drag queen who i knew of and really admired i loved their performance work i loved their political activism um i heard that they were willing to give their sperm away to people who needed it queers who needed it to have babies and so i immediately you know shot them an email and they got right back to me with a with a great big yes. This is Quentin. I'm assuming. This is Quentin. Yes. Who is a little concerned that he was short. <laughs> he was like, "Listen, I've got to tell you, I was turned away from a sperm bank sperm bank once because I'm only five six. And I'm like, this is so the problem with all of this sort of stuff that you know everyone's trying to construct. There's this feeling that you should be constructing some sort of like quote perfect human, and the perfection is totally these weird white Western European. Um, you know, boxes. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't care that you're short. Like I'm short, you know, like if I really, um, while at first it might seem like, oh, how cool you get to kind of pick and choose what you want your, what qualities you, you know, want to maybe give your children. Um, it's, it's kind of terrible, you know, it's, it's weird. I, I really wished that I could have just like, you know, gotten knocked up by somebody I was in love with. And, you know, the, the, the baby would just be the resulting scramble of both of our genes for good and for evil, you know, but I, I didn't, I didn't like that part of it. Um, I was like, I don't care. I, you know, I don't care that you're short, you're queer, you're, you're political, you're beautiful. You know, I want your sperm. <laughs> And had an absolutely fantastic personality the, the, and dedication that they brought to the scene. The dedication was amazing. Like, I don't think either one of us really understood what I was asking of him when I said, will you come over, you know, my house and, you know, give me some sperm so I can inseminate myself. Like, it's, you know, when you're ovulating, you're ovulating for a span of days and it's very urgent. You're like, get over here right now. <laughs> and so, you know, he'd have to just drop everything. And, you know, he, he came to my house in all sorts of manners. He came straight. He came on his birthday once straight from a protest at Occupy Wall Street. He came uh, before a drag event in full drag. You know, he he came after a birthday party once where he had rented a giant art gallery and turned it into a roller rink. I mean, I asked so much of him and he always showed up, you know, and it, it, it astrologically, he's right on the cusp of Aquarius and Capricorn, which I think is really perfect because he had that Capricorn like diligence to work like we, you know, I'm expected I will show up. And then he had that Aquarius like I must help my community. Fantastic. We'll talk about those insemination parties shortly. We're talking about queer pregnancy and parenting with Michelle T, author of the new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal, and we're talking about queer pregnancy and parenting with Michelle T., author of the new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. I'd love to hear a little bit. Can you paint us a picture of the insemination parties that you would have at your house? Oh, they were really wonderful. Um, I lived in a little, a very quaint little apartment on uh, Page Street, kind of in Hayes Valley. And Quentin would come over, and so would my one of my best friends, who I called Rhonda. And she is like a late life skateboarder who kind of was like a, a kind of had a Jeff Spicoli vibe, but like a queer girl. And um, she would come over as well. And oh, what would I do? I would get my cats out of the kitchen, and then I would lock, <laughs> I would let Quentin lock himself in the kitchen where he would, you know, produce some sperm, as one does, and um, have it in a bowl. <laughs> warm bowl. A warm bowl. You know, I started warming the bo- this little Pyrex bowl in the oven, and then I realized that maybe that wasn't a good idea. But we did keep using the same kind of really cute Pyrex, 1950s Pyrex bowl. So he would then shout when he was ready, and uh, Rhonda would go and get the bowl from him and then bring it to me. I'm in my bedroom, and I would use these little... Um, they're like these little syringes that you use to give babies medicine. So there's no needle, but there is like a little plunger. So we would scoop the sperm up with the plunger, and then I would kind of get it up, uh, you know, into my vag, and we would plunge it. And then I'd lay there with my legs kind of up. And I learned a lot as I went along. Like I was basically doing like a shoulder stand at first, thinking like I got to just dump that sperm up there. But I guess sperm instinctively... Um, like they, they, they wouldn't, I was maybe making it too difficult for the sperm to do that. So, you know, I, I, I kind of just started laying with my hips on a pillow and, um, yeah. And it was really fun. Then they would both come in my room while I just laid there for like a half hour and we would all hang out and talk. And it was very bonding and very, very sweet. Um, it really felt like we were doing something so special and it was really an experience that I'd never had before. And I was so grateful for it. Well, if you have stories similar, colorful stories from your queer, trans, or single parent world, we'd love to hear from them. So give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. And another member started coming to your insemination parties. Tell us about when you met Orson. Yeah, I ended up, even though I had sworn off dating, I met somebody. And um, we ended up getting very close kind of quickly. And it was very awkward to figure out how to involve this person in what I kind of already had going on. In fact, I I perhaps waited a little too long to even tell them that I was trying to get pregnant because I was like, when do you tell someone you've started dating that like you're in the process of hopefully having a baby, you know, soon. Yeah, it was very, it was a little awkward, but um, the fear was more awkward than actually once I you know, confessed what was going on. They were really excited for me. And at first they were like, you know, this is your thing and I really support it. But, you know, as we got closer and fell in love, they kind of jumped on board. And then it became, you know, four of us, you know, at the insemination parties at my house. And then, you know, these went on for how long? 
Gosh, they went on for, I, I would say maybe six months, nine, six to nine months. Okay, so now you're mid-40s? No, I'm still 40. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I am 40. Well, maybe 41 at this point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And But you're getting nervous because you're not getting pregnant. I started nervous. <laughs> yeah. And I got increasingly nervous, yeah. Fair. So you're, you're getting increasingly nervous that maybe yeah. this whole dream, this thing that now you're starting to get quite attached to might not unfold. And yeah. so you start calling fertility clinics. Oh, I started calling fertility clinics and it was, you know, really nerve wracking. Like I have a lot of money scarcity and I did have some money from, you know, my, my nonprofit and from some grants and selling some books. But when you live this kind of a life, like you're like, oh, I have money right now, but this might never happen again is always what it feels like. So, you know, I, I was really worried about that. And then calling fertility clinics was really awkward. They wanted to know, you know, my husband's information. And I'm just like, well, I don't, I'm not married and I don't, wouldn't have a husband anyway. Like it just was very, I mean, that's not true. I am married now and have a husband. So but at, that moment, <laughs> at that moment, that's, that's what was my reality. Um, so, but I ended up finding um, the clinic at UCSF, the fertility clinic, which is a nonprofit. And I started learning that they were like the least expensive and that they have a great track record and just all around, um, you know, very, very high esteem. And I felt really lucky that we were here and, and could utilize them. And so I did go to them and just kind of dipped my feet in. I wasn't making any commitments, but I just wanted to know like more about my body. And so I found out, well, first I found out that I had fibroids. Um, and then I found out that I didn't really have a lot of eggs. I had less than what was expected. And the, expect the expectations were a little low because of my age, but they were even lower than that. And the ones I had didn't look that great. So it was just nothing but bad news is what I got um, from the clinic, the fertility clinic. And so what kind of ideas did you and Orson start to chew on in terms of like adoption? Yeah, we were definitely thinking about adoption. I'd been thinking about adoption, you know, all the while. Um, so I knew that that was an option. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about Orson, ha you know, carrying the baby because we were committed to each other at that point. But, you know, Orson's genderqueer and that just as much as I wanted the experience of pregnancy, they were horrified by the thought of their body transforming like that. They did not want that experience. So, um, you know, what, once I sort of I was doing a lot of different tarot readings and everything was coming out bad. All the cards were bad. And then I was like, wait, what if I carried Orson's egg, you know, the fertility doctor, once he learned that my partner had ovaries and was like 10 years younger than me, he was elated. He was like, I'm not even talking to you and your eggs anymore. Like, bring that, bring your partner in. And I was like, okay, but they don't want to get pregnant. But then when I realized, oh, wait, they don't have to, we can, we can have a science baby. It made things really brighten up and I got great tarot cards on it. <laughs> How much did sort of magic, I mean, you've already mentioned a few times astrology, now tarot. How much did you sort of look to spirit, et cetera, to be kind of part of this process? I really do look to it. I don't put a ton of expectation on it um, because it is so mysterious. Um, and, you know, who knows what of it is, you know, psychology and, and what of it is something that is beyond. Um, but I enjoy it. And um, it gives me a, it gives me a lot of comfort and inspiration. And I do want to say that, you know, as far as astrology goes, I the, the insemination, um, well, the, the embryo transfer that resulted in my actual son, that transfer happened on the Aquarius new moon. 
And, you know, for those out there that are listening that know that know astrology, you know, um, new moons are the time for planting seeds. They're time for making wishes. I am an Aquarius. So that was my special new moon of the year. Um, I don't necessarily think Aquarius is a very like, I don't know, earthly fertile sign. We're kind of like cold in an outer space. Um, but I thought, you know, this if, if, if any if there's any ever a moment where Aquarius vibes will help me get pregnant, it will be on this new moon. And, and um, all my horoscopes that week were really like you're planting a seed this week that will, you know, bring all your wildest dreams to you in the future. And they were just really magical and and uh, so I did have high hopes for for that one. I mean it's too cliche to say but the stars aligned. The stars Jeez. aligned. I know it was really weird. It was really weird. And you know, I got a great tar- uh, tarot reading about this whole process at the start. Um and I did get a really good tarot reading about, you know, that the particular process that we went with with me um being uh uh me carrying Orson's egg. We're talking about queer pregnancy and parenting with Michelle T, having a bunch of fun. Author of the new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. Are you a queer or trans or single parent? We'd like to hear your pregnancy, childbirth, or parenting stories. Give us a call. Do you have an experience wanting or having a child later in life? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. Mark writes, the guest has had much to say about how to how choosing to be a single parent is a self and politically affirming punk and scrappy experience. Can she talk about her understanding of the effect of single parenting on her child? I'm a gay man whose father died when I was three years old. Now 51, the void created by my father's absence remains with me, and it has affected my life in hugely significant lifelong ways. I wonder how such eventualities factored into her decision to have a child. I mean, it sounds like you had a partner, but do you want to speak to this? I did end up having a partner, so I I never had to walk that road of being a single parent, right? And and me and my partner ended up separating, um, so so, but I, you know, we still have a very close co-parenting arrangement and I'm remarried and my husband is a huge part of my child's life. Um, so I don't really have that experience. Um, but I can imagine, you know, the void that, that you would feel at losing a parent, you know, and we all end up, we all face that eventuality. Right. And I do, you know, having a child later in life, I definitely think about that a lot. Um, you know, whenever, oh gosh, whenever I hear about like, you know, a celebrity dying, like so-and-so died at 81. I'm like, I do the math. and I'm like, okay, if I die at 81, how old will my child be? It's like, there's a, a way that having a child has put me um, in much greater touch with mortality, with my mortality. Um, I don't necessarily welcome it. It's <laughs> really nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is painful and nerve wracking. But at the same time, it's also reality. So I'm trying to find a way to kind of spiritually ground it, you know, um, so that I can live with it and and still feel a lot of joy. But, you know, there is a sense of, um, oh, man, you know, I in a way, I wish I started earlier, even though if I was really pushed, you know, to, to make that true, I don't think I would because I love the life that I've had. And I love how much time I had, you know, to establish my life before bringing a child into it. But, you know, I guess I guess there's just never enough time for us. It's such a rub, isn't it? I remember looking over my daughter's crib when she was at 
two or something, and I was all, oh, I want another one. And yet, I'm probably too old to have another one. Why didn't I start earlier? And yet, the entire time until I was 40, I was like, I wouldn't give any of this up. No, never. I mean, I just, I love my life so much. And it was um, because I was able to build such a, a beautiful um, and full and abundant life for myself that I then did feel ready to bring a child into it. I mean, you know, my, my life was in shambles until I was in my early th- early 30s, you know, and then a lot of my 30s was sort of cleaning up the wreckage. So I wasn't ready. Yeah. I think you just do it when you're ready. Absolutely. And then you have to live with the consequences of maybe just having one beautiful child. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Well, let's hear from Chris. Chris in Sonoma County. Hi. Hi. Um, I just, I, I really, it's, it's, it's very refreshing hearing this. Um, and I wanted to just say thank you for putting your story out there and having this conversation. As somebody who's part of the queer community, um, there's nothing more that I want in this world than to have a family. And I know that it's a little bit more difficult for the queer community to start a family. And I just, I just want to say like, thank you, honestly, for putting your story out there. I, I love it. And, you know, congratulations to you. I'm very, very happy for you. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. And, you know, best of luck to you building your own family. I mean, one thing that I really learned from this experience is we're so, you know, lucky. It's just another way that we're so lucky as queer people. Like there there are barriers, you know, obviously to us getting pregnant. But then our community is so phenomenal and the bonds between, you know, queer friends and allies and, you know, it, it's extraordinary. And, and because we're already sort of off the map, you know, we don't need to follow a particular um, route to family building. Like we can totally create our own um, family structures and, and structures of kinship. And, and I love that. I really I find that really inspiring. And so this was Orson's egg. We yes. already know you had a baby boy, but let's just go back up for one sec. <laughs> sure. so we, have, we have Orson's egg, and then we have Quentin's sperm. We have still. Quentin's sperm. Yes, we did peek at sperm banks for a minute, and I just found it, you know, so uninspiring compared to the living, breathing beauty of Quentin. You know, there in our life, and I had such admiration and trust in him, admiration for and trust in him. So we ended up going back and working with Quentin, and then my uterus which never ages, apparently, I learned. I, I learned so many things about my body that I never knew. Yeah. It's just forever. It's, it's forever. Excellent. Yeah. Just be popping up, you know, <laughs> popping embryos up there till you're 70 and your uterus is like, okay. Then, uh, yeah, it's never too late. I love that. <laughs> We're talking about queer pregnancy and parenting with Michelle T. She's the author of the new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. And we want to hear from you. Do you have an experience wanting or having a child later in life? Give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. How did the fertility clinic treat you all, given this sort of unique situation? We're an SF. We're pretty progressive. Did you feel well taken care of? I felt uh, very well taken care of by the individual people that I worked with, you know, like everyone from the receptionist who was a doll and I loved to, you know, nurse practitioners. Our doctor was phenomenal. But it seemed like the actual structure and the systems within the clinic, just things as simple as their computer, whatever their computer program is, whatever software is on their computer that helps them, you know, um, put punch the data in about their patients. It was terrible. Like I was being listed as like a surrogate. Um, like it was really hard for us to, you know, be listed as 
partners. It was it was weird. Like people had to go out of their way and make sure, you know, it just was not set up for somebody in our situation. And I was shocked at that because it is San Francisco. There are so many queer people here. I'm, we're certainly not the first, you know, queer couple to utilize that clinic. And I, you know, for me, I was so intimidated by the whole process. I'm definitely somebody who, you know, historically is not you know, is ready to start a fight with somebody about like a, a queer phobic situation. But I found I was already dealing with so much internalized um, stuff around money and around, you know, my body and all this, you know, can I have a baby? What am I walking into? That it was a little bit harder to kind of stand up to the systems and be like, hey, that's, you know, queer phobic that you don't have, you know, a, a, an easy way to enter me and my partner into your system. Um, and because I was a quote surrogate, um, we had to have this psych consult that was really annoying. And our doctor, you know, without us even saying anything, tried to get us out of it because just recognized that like that is not, you know, that's not a, a psych consult to see if you were like good parents or what I was mean, the... I guess it was I think that they're set up for people who are entering into a surrogacy situation, which, you know, an arrangement. And that is not, you know, that was not what was happening. Right. Like we were in a committed relationship and this is how we were going to have our baby using all the parts of our bodies um, that were available to us. So it was it was really uncomfortable um, and I felt super resentful about it. And, um, you know, we, we got out of it. You know, we had to do it because it's their protocol. So, you know, it just, that was really annoying. And, you know, I do believe that their systems, you know, and this was, you know, seven years ago or so. So maybe their systems have, you know, been a little bit shifted. But I I definitely found that even though everyone that I met on a person to person level, nobody ever um, made me feel weird, or I don't believe that everyone, anyone ever made um, my ex feel weird. We felt really um sweetness from everybody but excellent but when we dealt with these forms when we were having to deal with that that um it, it felt really alienating and weird the system the is system was a problem up. yeah got it well let's sneak in a call before we go to another break uh sonia in oakland hi can you hear me uh, great hi hi yeah thanks it's fascinating listening to your story i'm really enjoying it and bringing back a lot of memories. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really, um, it's interesting. It's an interesting journey, and ours was certainly too, different in a way, but my partner and I, at the time, really wanted to have kids, and I got involved with her, and I said, look, I'm only going to stay with you if we can have kids, and it took her a while to come around, mm-hmm. and we decided mm-hmm. she'd, she'd go first, and she was a little older and more more nervous, and I have a history of, um, I'm an early childhood educator, so I felt a little bit more confident. Um, anyway, um, we searched high and low, and your stories about sperm banks and all of that, it was highly stressful, and we went for one in LA, and they told us eventually that was old sperm, and if old you think sperm. about it, every time they open the freezer, <laughs> like, oh no, we're paying all this money for old sperm. <laughs> so after a long search, at the time I was a nanny, and this wonderful couple, straight couple, who I was looking after their kids and kind of feeling like a family member, the mom just said, look, I'm just going to ask, we'll ask my husband and see if he's up for it. And uh, Leave us there. That's a great hanger because we're about to go to, to go to a break. But stick around, Sonia. We obviously want to hear the rest of that story. So stick around. We'll be right back. We're talking about queer pregnancy and parenting with Michelle T., author of the new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Sonia. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal, and we're having a conversation with Michelle T about her new memoir, Knocking Myself Up. And is Sonia, it looks like Sonia's gone. Is Sonia still there? Can we go to Sonia and hear the rest of her story? Great. Hi. Hi. Keep going. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, where was I? I was just feeling really reflective because. Um, Basically, it took a while, but Susan got pregnant, which was really great. And we had this gorgeous child who now, just today, I dropped off at college for the first time. He's off. Congratulations. So, yeah, crazy. Really crazy. Didn't talk to me the whole drive over, but I'm like, well, anyway, that's just beside the point. Anyhow, after he was born um, and we had this gorgeous kid and then I really wanted to get pregnant. And luckily, our sperm donor friend said, sure, go again. It took me a while, um, but successful in the end, which was amazing. And we got to have Joshua. And it was so interesting because the first, you know, when our first son was born, I was a new mom, but I wasn't the kind of new mom that people expected. So I'd be walking with him down the road and people were like, wow, you look great. You've just born. Oh, my God. And there was this assumption I was the mom. And so I'd given birth. And so even though we live in the East Bay, it's still kind of an anomaly in a certain kind of way to be in that role. It's really interesting. Fascinating. Um, so anyway, yeah, so it, was a, it was a great ride. And they both feel that there's a connection for sure that they have the same sperm donor. And even though, they're, you know, we both raised them very much together, when we separated, there was a little bit like, oh, you're not my birth mother. We had a little pushback a bit oh, wow. here and there, um, which was interesting. And... Um, is what it is. I mean, you never know what you're going to get. But the wonderful thing is the family that donated the sperm have their own kids. And um, there's talk about getting together and then getting to meet these half-siblings. And the mom is really into it. I don't know if the dad is as much, but I'm hoping that we can do that in the future. They know about them. We all know each other, know about each other, of course, but they're not really in each other's lives at this, point, at this time. And I just feel really grateful the way it happened. was very low low-key, low-tech, free, after all of that crazy buying old sperm. So, yeah, that's our story, and it's great to hear Thank yours. You. And- yeah, thank you so much, Sonia, for sharing. There was, there was, yeah, thank you for taking us into that world. M- Michelle, I'm curious for you if, if you if you want to share, and you didn't put it in the book, so no worries if not, but I'm curious, how much did you end up spending? Oh, I think I did, actually. I mean, we, I think that the bill from the clinic was $14,000, and I think that we had spent 
something like $4,000 on meds um, for the first round of meds. And then, you know, we had to do, we did three rounds of um, embryo transfers. So, but I don't think that, I think it was a little cheaper each time we did the meds because we didn't have to buy quite everything. Um, But yeah, you know, it's definitely... It was cheaper than we thought because we had hyped it up in our heads so much. We were so scared that when we got the $14,000 bill, we were sort of gleeful and felt like we were getting something for free, even though like $14,000 is a lot of money. Um, it, it was mu- it was less than what we thought it would be. Um, so we were grateful for that. But yeah, it is. It's definitely a very pricey uh, route to go for sure. Right, right. Andrew writes, my husband and I, both gay men, are parenting our son who was born in 2020. Congratulations. Congrats. When we were about to turn 40, I realized, unfortunately, that I have absorbed messages from certain areas of the gay male community who disavow having kids, that it's not queer, it's not cool, etc. A John Waters quote echoes in my brain from time to time. Quote, the great thing about being gay is that you never have to join the military and you never have to have kids, end quote. Is Michelle aware of any other writings, resources, etc., like Ariel Gore, who counter this kind of perspective? I'd also be interested in hearing her thoughts on the matter. Oh, that's great. I mean, I love John Waters, and he's not wrong. It is great to not have to have kids, right? I mean, think of what a different world we'd live in if people didn't feel like they had to have kids, right? And that the kids that came into the world were kids that were coming from a great desire to parent like the one that you have. Um, so let me see. What um, what other books are there about queer families um gosh what is there ariel's book is really great obviously your book my (laughs) thanks there's definitely a lot of books out there there's this um there is um oh gosh now it's this is like when you when you used to go into like a video store and be like what movie i'm so dating myself but that's like my (laughs) reference point for it um there are books out there. Please go to your library. Please do searches on the Internet. There are definitely uh, books about queer parenting. And I'm so sorry that I'm spacing out on them right now. But, you know, noodle on it. We can come back to okay, it. Too. I'll noodle. I'll noodle. Um, but, yeah, you know, there's um, there. I, I felt pushback, too. I definitely, you know, by the time I was 40, you know, a lot of uh, people who were more certain um, from the start about their decision to have a family, they'd already kind of gone off. And, and had their family. And so the queer community in a broad way sort of had had separated it between those who were going to have children and those who were just going to hoard uh, rescue animals, you know, for the rest of their life. So I was with the rescue hoarding, animal hoarding, you know, artists. And um, and so when I suddenly was like, I'm going to have a kid, you know, my friends were just like, what are you ta- even talking about? Like they thought I was quite wild. Um, and it, it's been, you know, mostly fine, you know, um, but it, 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 there is definitely, you know, factions of queer community that is, are so grateful that we don't have to have kids and that kids are a very foreign thing to them. And people have their own baggage that they bring from their own childhood and families and what that all means. So, you know, we're the queer community. We can't do anything simply. <laughs> Everything has layers and layers of, 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 um, of, of depth and, and, and material and complications and, and beauty. So I just wish you so much luck. And um, I, I still love John Waters in spite of the fact that he probably does hate children. But, you know, we wouldn't want him any other way, would we? You know. And how many – you weren't kidding when you said hoard animals because at one point, I don't know, you had – 
I don't know, two cats and dogs and hamsters. I don't know. There was a lot going on. There was a lot going on over COVID because my mother moved in with me. And um, and then my now husband moved in with his dog. My mother moved in with her cat. I had a cat. My son had a hamster. But um, we've had, we had to make some changes. <laughs> we had to rehome my mom's cat because the cats decided to go to war uh, with urine. And they started peeing in the vents. Oh, right. So it's like an atomizer, like a oh, cat urine atomizer in your It was awful. <laughs> I was like, we can't live like this. I don't even think it's healthy. No. And then my son's hamster, who was like the best pet in the house, just passed away last month, which is very sad. Very sad. But, you know, he lived a really great hamster life. And now my son is on to wanting a chameleon. So who knows what comes next? Got it. Well, let's go to Joy in Oakland. Joy, tell us your story. Hi, um, thank you both so much uh, for having this segment. And Michelle, uh, I remember reading one of your earlier memoirs, and it's actually as a new parent myself, uh, my child has just turned three. It's 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 just nice to hear about someone who I never thought would be in the market for children, um, as myself never was, <laughs> sort of taking the plunge. Um, I identify as, as non-binary, and a lot of what you were talking about earlier. Um, about sort of how the system is so set up for the cishet model and um, how sort of it, it's really just so ingrained in us that becoming a parent as a non-binary person who presents sort of masculine center and um, is the sort of full-time primary caregiver for a child whom I did not carry, um, it's really just been an identity crisis of sorts, sort of having to deal with all of my, speaking of baggage from our own childhood, um, sort of, you know, all these ingrained gender roles and running into that. But I, I, sort, I could sort of avoid it before, but now, like, having a child, you know, going to parent groups where it's majority, you know, people want to call me mom, and I'm like, no, thank you. And, you know, just navigating that whole scene has just been a real ride. Oh, I really feel that for you. It really, it's real. It is really wild, and it's so hard. It's like you're having every day to go out and kind of fix the world to make space for you and to make space for other other people that are like you and all the people who don't fit in to that, you know, mom dad binary. Um, and if you don't, then you just you can feel the world sort of encroaching on you and sort of like trying to shove you into those weird little boxes. And you've, you've got to be constantly resisting them. And that can be really exhausting. But thank you so much for for what you're doing. I mean, I really do believe that, you know, future generations of um, queer folk and non-binary folk like will have it a little easier because every generation kind of just paves the way a little bit smoother. Let's go to Amy and Alameda. Amy. Hi, um, thank you so much for this program. Um, I'm really enjoying all the stories. Mine is, um, I'm a single, um, straight cis woman, and I've always wanted to have a family. And in my late 30s, I froze my eggs. Um, I was single at the time, and always wanted to have a family. So when the technology was there, I just kind of jumped on it. I didn't have the money. I took out like a 0% for a year <laughs> credit card and figured I'd come up with the money somehow. Um, strange enough, I met this older man who passed away a month after I met him and he put me in his will. Um, his wife had just passed away and I guess we had had a few conversations 
where he felt kind of um, fatherly toward me. He didn't have children of his own. He didn't know I was doing this freezing egg procedure, but that's just kind of one of those magical things that came up. He mm-hmm. left me $12,000 and the procedure cost something like that. So it was just kind of like one of those amazing coincidences. But um, so that was eight years ago. Um, I've, I've been in um, relationships with a couple of men that could have turned into something and, Sadly, they didn't. And now I'm 45, and I still have my dream of being a mom. Um, it looks a little different now in terms of kind of how I think about it. And sometimes I think about just doing it myself, but I really want to share that with a partner. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. And actually, I heard about the egg freezing thing on a KQED <laughs> like program. I don't know if it was for him, but... Um, and so anyway, that's kind of the other lovely bookend of, uh, me hearing this program. So that's my story. Good luck to you, whatever you end up deciding to do. Yeah, absolutely. Amy, I, I, I hope you get to be a mama. Yeah. In, in whatever form it's meant to be, it seems like the stars are aligning in some way, um, along the way to hint that, that it's meant to happen for sure. Good luck to you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one of the last chapters in your book, Michelle, is titled Something Has Flipped. And I, th- I think it's a, a really apt description of the post-baby days and weeks and maybe beyond. What what flipped? It just I just felt like I was coming home a totally new person, you know. And there's I think there's so few um, experiences in our life where we really can feel like, wow, I'm, I'm different now. You know, like I think those are really remarkable when that happens. And. Um, I was I was just completely attuned to this little peanut, you know, and I, I felt so um, incredibly protective of him, um, even to the extent that, like, I remember, you know, um, my ex was watching some movie on TV, like some action movie, and there was like gun, gun, the sound of gunfire and things exploding, you know, and I just remember being like, oh, my God, this little thing cannot hear those sounds, you know, and I just was like, I just was so attuned to my environment in a way that I never had been before. Um, And, you know, I mean, oh, my gosh, hormones were certainly a part of that. Um, When I learned that uh, after pregnancy, your hormone level dips to beneath your baseline. And, you know, learning that and knowing that my you know, so-called baseline had been artificially raised, you know, with all of my fertility medications. I was like, whoa, I really, um, you know, I really felt just incredibly um, permeable and raw and vulnerable and um, like like every emotion in the world that humanity had ever felt was sort of coursing through me, like love and and um, just a really deep tenderness. Uh, yeah. Does it persist today? I mean, I'm definitely changed from it. It's not at that level of intensity. Thank, It's not at that level of intensity, thankfully, because I don't know that I would have been able to be functional. Um, but it is still there. You know, it comes and goes. It rises and, and, and dips in its intensity. Um, and to me, that is the experience of having given birth, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, being a person whose body has done that and has been really irrevocably changed from that on the inside and the outside. As a really powerful feminist in the world, what is it like to raise a male peanut? And bring that, you know, a boy into the world and raise a boy. A male peanut. I am bringing a boy into the world. I'm bringing a white boy into the world. Um, I, I'm always... 
Uh, what I'm afraid of is that I'm overloading him with information. I, I really enjoy the challenge of translating um, concepts that I think are important for him to understand from the get go into a language that is, you know, appropriate for his age. You know, I remember I remember him being in the bathtub once and him being like um, he was really little. He was a toddler. He was like, I like, you know, boys the best. I like boys. And I was like, cool. You know, how come? And he was like, because uh, boys have penises. And I was like, cool. I was like, I know. Yeah, most boys have penises, but not all. There's also a lot of boys that don't have penises. And there's some girls that have penises. So, you know, penises aren't only for boys. And he was like, okay. You know, and like moved on. I remember telling my mother about that interaction and she just was like, oh my God, you're going to confuse him and all this stuff. And I was like, he didn't seem confused. He seemed like he got it. I think that what happens is when you're 20 years old and you are raised thinking that all boys have penises and all, you know, all girls don't. And then you meet a trans person, then you're confused. And then all kinds of bad, bad things, you know, potentially can happen. Unfold. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so I, you know, we talk about, we talk about things like that. We talk about white privilege. You know, he knows that like gay people, you know, used to not be able to marry each other, which was shocking to him. And it's really wonderful and gratifying to see you know, his reactions, you know, there's like very pure reactions. And, you know, to tell him that like when like when me and his other parent first got together, like we weren't legally allowed to get married, you know, wow, and right. that but that had changed during, you know, before our wedding that changed. And this one spun my head. So after you divorced, you considered adopting your child, which to me is just like, why would you have to adopt your child? Uh, well, that was actually concern that didn't come from my divorce. That was something that we had been urged to do by folks in the know from the get go oh, okay. as a queer family. Um, yeah, it's re it's really awful. It's it's basically because um, there's such homophobia and queerphobia through the land um, and because, you know, states are different and I'm a person that travels a lot. Most people, you know, travel somewhat. You're really encouraged to actually ad adopt. Now, I thought that I had to adopt my child so that it, so that my parenthood over over him would never be contested by some sort of homophobic court or, you know, place. Um, and I thought that I would have to adopt him because he didn't have my DNA. Right. I was, quote, the surrogate. Um, so. People had been sort of telling us we should do it. We knew we should do it. We never did it. And then just recently during the Dobbs decision, I was like, oh, man, you know, when I heard should I do it. Yeah. When I heard, you know, that Clarence Th Thomas was, you know, suggesting that the court review all these other um, uh, other things that the court had had ruled on that was helping me feel safe. In, in my you know authority as my child's parent uh, so I looked into it and as it turns out it's my ex who would have had to because they were not cisgendered male and they were also not the person who actually gestated the baby it's so homophobic even though it's it's gross it's so Orson's awful egg. Yeah. yeah no it's so terrible it's like they would see Orson as the parent some, you know, it's, it's possible that some places would would make that call. Um, thankfully, we got divorced and our divorce paperwork operates as a parenthood judgment because it is, you know, notarized, signed by a judge that, you know, that we are both the parents and that we share custody. So we're good. But it's it's awful. It's a, it's it's a humiliating and offensive thing that queer parents have to look at. Yes, we're, well, there's still a lot of work yeah, to be done. Tons. So. 
thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We've been talking with Michelle T. about her new memoir, Knocking Myself Up, and she appears in conversation with Lisa Brown tonight at 7 p.m. at, 9th, on, at the 9th Avenue location of Green Apple Books. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. This was great. So much fun. I'm Leslie McClurg. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.